Hi, welcome to the Friday, August 28th edition of the Kelly Cutrera podcast. Today on the show, WestJet's getting tough on anti-maskers as of September 1st. We'll talk with WestJet about the new policy. And epidemiologist Colin Furness will join us to talk about a fishing expedition that may have inadvertently proven the power of COVID-19 antibodies. All right, let's get right down to it. I'd like to welcome Karen Lieberman from Global News onto the program. Karen, happy Friday to you. Thank you. Same to you. So yesterday you had an opportunity to see what it looks like as far as schools go, getting into a public school in Brampton, Aylesbury Public School in Brampton. It's an elementary school. And I think one of the questions on everybody's minds is, what is this going to look like going back to school? So give us an idea of what you saw and what you uh, learned from the people that work at Aylesbury. So I can tell you that that one school in particular, and I think it's important to note that it is a newer school. So the school building the structure has only been in place for five years. So it is a newer school. And I think it's important that we emphasize that because like my own kids and many other children will be attending much older buildings. And so the infrastructure is not nearly the same. Having said that, the staff at this one particular school will have a really good handle on what they're going to be doing when the kids come back. And it really starts you know, right in the morning when the parents drop off the children, you know, children, parents like to congregate outside of school. I know I do the same thing. We are all kind of guilty of it. And we wave to our kids and we kiss them and hug them. Well, Aylesbury has a program called um, Kiss and Ride. And so, you know, the, the, they'll, the parents will drive up and they don't even get anywhere close to the front door, kiss their kids goodbye in the car. And then there's a teacher there, um, an educator with a walkie-talkie, walkie-talkie off to the child's actual, let's say, classroom teacher. And then that child is escorted to an outdoor space. So they don't even go inside yet until all the children are there together as a group. And then, you know, I don't know if it's the principal or the vice principal, but again, you know, on their walkie-talkies or via text message, you know, group 1A, enter the building. Group 1B, enter the building. So it's really um, Hmm. a very coordinated entry. And so and so that's how the morning starts. And I think that's really important and reassures families that, you know, they're at least trying their best to physically distance from the beginning. Karen, are they um, separated into their cohorts? When you say Group 1A will enter the mm-hmm. building, are they, you already know what your cohort will be and that's where you will, uh, like, is there signage to say outside, you go here, you go here? I suppose that the way it works with that is that, I mean, I'm, I'm Honestly, I'm guessing. I, I really don't mm-hmm. know. They actually didn't emphasize when the family. I, I would imagine families learn who the teacher is. So, yeah. um, and then the child's on a list, and so everybody. There's all these lists. Like they showed me. Honestly, they look like blueprints. And the person who's standing and you know receiving the child from the vehicle um, knows where that child's supposed to be, and then that child's sent to the outdoor space with his or her teacher and waits there for the group. Um, I want to talk more about the outdoor education because I think it's really important and, and it's been so important for families that children spend as much time outside as possible for a couple of reasons. And obviously the most obvious is that we know it's, it's safer outside, right? And there's more, there's more space. It's, you're not stuck in a classroom with you know, closed windows. And so this school is doing its best to have the children outside as much as possible. And so one thing that the principal mentioned was, you know, it sounded interesting. She's like, look, there is going to be bad weather. Um, and the children are going to put on their raincoats and they're going to sit and maybe they'll get a little bit wet. Um, but for us, COVID is a challenge. The weather isn't. And so, you know, the kids will buck up and they'll deal with it. And um, because they know that it's it's safer for them in this outdoor environment um, than inside. Having said that, I, of course, there are precautions being taken inside as well. 
Yeah. Now I want to just stick on outdoor education if we could mm -hmm. for a second, because my memory of, of outdoor classes, and this would happen because we didn't have air conditioning in school. I know right. a lot of people are still going to those schools that we went to as kids. Um, and what a teacher would do on an obscenely hot day is sometimes take us outside so we could catch a breeze and we'd all, you know, sit around in a circle or kind of clump together somewhere on the school in the uh, school grounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're, you're sitting on the ground. Is that what they're doing for the outdoor space? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 not it's not at all sort of high tech, and you know we you would kind of envision and hope that it would be like you know little tables and maybe little chairs and I don't know like little maybe stools that they can sit on. It's not. It's really back to basics. Like when you and I were outside because we were you know braving the hot weather, which was you know the, the situation inside. It's literally kids sitting on the ground, spaced out. Well, that could be I problematic mean, with rain. Then it could be. you get a raincoat, yeah, but yeah. it could get pretty yeah. mucky. Yeah, it could be. And I mean, the reality is, is we're experiencing amazing weather right now, you know, despite some of the heat, but, um, you know, the fall gets wet. So, um, so all of this is sort of like a play by ear kind of situation, right? Mm -hmm. And then, oh, and we, and, this, and we've mm -hmm. noticed that people are really good at uh, improvising. So I don't feel, I don't feel too concerned about that, but let's go indoors. What did you see about yeah. the distancing going on between desks? So we went into, I'm going to say three, maybe four classrooms. The grade three classroom, I'm pretty sure it was a grade three that we went into, used to be the art class. And so fortunately for the kids in that room, they're incredibly spaced out. Like it's a, it's a phenomenal sort of setup. Um, and, you know, the, the vice principal is telling us that the, the custodians have really been, you know, cleaning and spacing and measuring. And so this room was very well spaced out. Um, and each child has like a little kind of plastic bin on his or her desk. And with the stuff that they're going to need, and there's no obviously there's no sharing, and whatever you get, whatever you have at your desk is what you're using. And then um, in terms of you know lunch times and recess, again back to this like new schedule that that looks so complicated to me, but they seem to have it down where you know group or class six B is heading out for recess at so and so time, and there's no more than you know four groups outside at that time and then you know they alternate so i don't know if that means that you know some people can be having lunch like early in the morning and late in the afternoon I'm, I'm hoping not for some of the kids sakes but they seem to definitely have that plan um down and then also um i want to mention that you know that literally the second you walk into the school of course like any building in the city and elsewhere there are tons of you know there's tons of sanitizer available and um there's a lot of signage like more signage than i've seen um, you know, at my own kids' school as of yet with, you know, reminders to wear your mask and, you know, wash your hands. And then one other thing I really want to mention in the office that they have is these isolation rooms. And that is a room where a child will go, a student, if they are exhibiting any COVID symptoms, which in most cases will be a sniffle because it probably would just be a cold, but is, anything's possible. And then outside that room is a stack of PPE, more than just masks but that the teachers can apply, can put on um, shields and also full gowns. And so the expectation is that some of the younger ones, especially when they're not feeling well, need a cuddle and the teacher mm -hmm. will do their best to, you know, um, offer that in full PPE. Okay. Well, that that's comforting because the provincial guidelines are if a child feels sick at school, they then have to isolate and a parents are called to pick them up. They can't get on a bus and you have to just wait. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that that is uh, comforting and hopefully most school boards are doing the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about technology? Because I understand the school, uh, Aylesbury Public School in Brampton, 
is taking advantage of technology with a something a, a QR code on a sandwich board outside yeah. the school. What does that tell yeah, people? That's right. Yeah. So as soon as you get to the school, we noticed it right away. There is a couple of um, sort of like little art eagles and you're like, oh, what is that? And you walk up to it and it's this massive QR code and, and the vice principal, they have two vice principals and one of them was explaining to me that this is for um, registration. So, I mean, I guess that school is unique in that personally with mine and my kids are at a Toronto school board school. Um, it was online, but in this school, I guess a lot of the parents can go to the school to register their children and so in an effort to have nobody kind of going in and out, they can go and literally scan the QR code on their cell phones to register their kids. And so that's you know, part of the reason for that. And then the other reason is, as we know, a lot of families, you know, have issues and want to you know, deal with the administration and talk about, you know, the kids' teachers or, you know, any, any variety of reasons. And so, again, they would scan that code and it takes you to a Google spreadsheet and you would, in, in, you would insert your name and information and your concern. And then within, you know, 24, 48 hours, whatever it is, the vice principal or, you know, somebody in the office would contact you back and schedule whether it's a virtual meeting or if you need to be seen in person that they would do it that way so it really all to you know limit the number of people coming and going um to keep to keep it safe Karen, that is so smart because what I'm hearing from listeners, and I'm not sure what you're hearing from parents, is that the communication from school is from their schools is lacking. They're Very. confused about what uh, school yeah. is going to look like. Uh, they're calling the office, and it's just they're not getting any answers. So to to be able to reach out and know that you're going to get an email back in 24 to 48 hours, maybe it's not quick enough for some people, but at least you you know that there is a process here and you don't feel like you're just hanging on the telephone, letting it ring, letting it ring and having mm -hmm. someone sitting there looking at the phone going, I'm not picking you up on the other end. I have to agree completely. And I have to say that even, you know, I won't say the name of my the school that my children go to, but we've had very limited communication. We've had next to nothing. I have no idea what it's going to look like when my own kids go back. Um, so it is reassuring to me that at least the families, the hundreds of families who are sending their children to that one particular appeal school will have that do have that communication um, and hopefully we're able to give them a good a good view of sort of what it'll look like for their kids and know that the school has a handle a handle on it but i'll mention that you know of the i think it's like 800 and something student population i believe they told us 320 families or students will be doing the at-home learning so um yeah so that did reduce the numbers you know somewhat and that's right. the case in many schools as parents choose that that you know option Karen, I appreciate your time today and best of luck getting your kids back to school safely. Thank you so much. Cheers. That's Karen Lieberman from Global News. All right. Tuesday, we learned from the federal government that of the flights that landed in Canada between August 1st and 18, 55 of those flights had passengers who tested positive for COVID-19 after arriving. The vast majority of the flights with COVID-19 passengers landed in Toronto, but a number of them also touched down in Montreal, Vancouver and Calgary. And Calgary, of course, is home to WestJet Airlines. Um, they are among the airlines that are trying to make sure that they uh, make air travel as safe as possible during this pandemic. They're doing their utmost to let us know that they have our safety in mind and they're vying for your confidence when it comes to flying safely. I think today WestJet made a big announcement that is going to help gain your confidence. Uh, our, the VP of Communications at WestJet, Richard Bartram, joins the program right now. Richard, thanks for sparing some time today. You're welcome. Good morning, Kelly. So your announcement today was a biggie. You're going to start getting tough with uh, passengers that refuse to mask up. Tell us a little bit about it. 
Yeah, so we've announced it today, but it is effective September 1st that in the event that there is a guest traveling with us who is non-compliant and refuses to wear their mask and to wear it in the appropriate fashion, so making sure that both your uh, mouth and your nose are covered, uh, we've introduced essentially an escalating system. So at first, we'll ask you to put back on the mask, and then we will read out a verbal warning. Think of it almost as in soccer, where you may move from a yellow card to a red card. So at that point, the, the crew will read instructions to you saying that these are the consequences in the event that you refuse to comply. So if we're still on the gate and haven't left anywhere, then we'll ask you to get um, And then if it's all the way through to the continued non-compliance, then when we land where we happen to be going, we'll remove you from the aircraft and you will be uh, banned from traveling with WestJet for one year. Is there any uh, possibility of being in the air and someone decides, well, I'm not going to comply with this anymore, I'm losing my mask, of actually turning around and landing um, the plane in a different destination or going back to your original destination? What are the odds of that? Yeah, that, I mean, that would be a, what's called a diversion if we're heading to another city or an air turn back if we're actually heading back to where we started from. So highly unlikely, but in the event that we now have somebody that is non-compliant, then that certainly is under consideration. In that event, it would be less about the mask, and now they are actually becoming unruly to the point of the safety and security of our crew and the other guests on board the aircraft are at risk. Then we're going to get on the ground as quickly as possible and let the authorities deal with it. Nightmare for people traveling with that person, but is there a charge that they would face then? There certainly could be, and uh, those air turnbacks or diversions are not inexpensive endeavors because we are now having to land somewhere. There's landing fees associated with that. There's the fuel burn of now actually getting down and back up and getting those people on their way. We could be in a position where we actually now have to overnight people in hotels depending on where the crew is in their active duty day and whether they're allowed to continue to fly. So there's dozens of criteria that would go into those decisions, but certainly could be something that we would then pursue in court. So effective September 1st, what you're basically suggesting is WestJet WestJet will adopt a two strikes and you're out situation. You're asked to put your mask back on by cabin crew. If you don't, you're given an official warning um, that mask compliance is necessary. And that is uh, because of Transport Canada laws right now that require everyone over the age of two to wear a mask on board all flights. If you do not comply, you're off the flight and you also will be put on a year long no fly list. I understand that most people are actually adhering to the masking rule. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at since March, when this, when we really started to feel the effects of the pandemic here in Canada, March 23rd is when we started to pull down schedule. And just to give you a sense of context, we have 181 aircraft in our fleet. There's roughly 150 of those parked in the air on the ground right now, and we're flying just uh, uh, a few dozen of those aircraft right now because of the decrease in demand. So as we slowly start to see the recovery begin, and people who haven't now traveled for upwards of 160, 170 days are looking forward to that, we don't want that experience now messed up by somebody who decides not to wear a mask and so they need to understand that we're taking it very very seriously and that there will be consequences for non-compliance and so what we hope and what we expect is that we will never get to that point because people will then realize that the uh, the, the greater good of the collective is far more important and that they will put that mask on but in the event we've got to provide ourselves with opportunities to uh, uh, to let people know just how seriously we are taking this All right. uh, There's got to be somebody listening right now that's thinking, well, I I actually cannot wear a mask because of uh, medical reasons. What happens in that case if they want to fly with WestJet? Do they risk not being able to fly for a year with you? 
No, that's not that's not just a WestJet thing, but there are provisions within the Transport Canada regulations that do allow that in the event if somebody is unable to wear a mask, a mask for a medical reason, then provided that they have the proper documentation that, that shows that, in fact, they cannot wear a mask, then they are allowed to do so. I understand that on September the 1st, um, WestJet also will be requiring contact information. Tell us how that's going to work, what that's going to look like at the airport where we get on the flight. Yeah, so this is uh, an important component of being able to effectively track and and hopefully eradicate um, COVID-19 is to understand uh, if there are, in fact, people have who have been on an aircraft, have been anywhere for that matter, and uh, subsequently test positive for COVID-19, being able to effectively contact people who may have come in contact with that person. So one of the challenges that we have, we obviously, as you put in your own information into the system, we would have some of that information. But if we're working with third parties who may have put in someone else's information, like a travel agent, for example, we may not have that information to pass on to public health agencies. So what we have now written into our check-in system, our software, is that uh, as you go to get your boarding pass online, uh, we will ask you for all that contact information. That will be ready for September 1st. It's ready now. We'll introduce it September 1st. And then the kiosks at the airport, if you decide you want to check in there, by the end of September, all the code will have been rewritten for the kiosks across Canada. So that same information will be asked of you before we print out a boarding pass. That way, in the event that somebody happens to have been on your aircraft that um, that subsequently tests positive for COVID-19, uh, the public health agencies can get in touch with you as quickly as possible. Up until uh, your introduction of this on September 1st, how has it worked? How have people found out that they might have been on a flight with someone that was COVID positive? Or, you know, they didn't know it at the time, but days later they test positive for COVID. Yeah, we've been providing that information since the outset of the of this uh, pandemic in March. We've been providing that information to public health agencies uh, already, as uh, as best as the information is that we have available at that time. As well, we are, uh, as far as we know, the only airline in Canada that since the beginning of uh, of the pandemic has been providing that information proactively to our website. So, in the event that uh, somebody were concerned about a particular flight that they were on, they could actually go to the website and every single flight that may have uh, had somebody who had come in contact with COVID on it, that information has been readily available to the public. Well, I want to thank you for your time today, Richard. It's a pleasure having you on the program and thanks for updating us as to the changes that we'll all face when we take a WestJet flight as of September 1st. The goal is to keep us safe. Absolutely. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate it. Have a great day. That is Richard Bartram, VP of Communications at WestJet. Get ready. If you're not willing to mask up and you don't have the proper uh, doctor's note to explain why you're not masking up on your WestJet flight as of September 1st, they'll ask you once nicely, put on your mask, and then they'll give you an official warning. And then uh, bye-bye. You're off the flight and you're off all WestJet flights for up to a year. All right, let's bring on Dr. Colin Furness, who is an epidemiologist uh, with the University of Toronto. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on again, doctor. Good morning. I, I saw this story about a, a Seattle fishing expedition that may have inadvertently proven the power of COVID-19 antibodies after the virus swept through the ship. And I found the story confusing. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe you could help us out with the story. Uh, this was a ship that spent 18 days at sea in May. It wasn't an experiment that was planned. It just kind of happened, correct? Yes. All right. So maybe give us the background on what we uh, what happened on the ship and, and what we can learn from it. Well, they, they tested the entire crew before they went off on their, on their expedition, and everybody came back negative. Um, 
three people, obviously, fishermen, obviously had previously had COVID, and I guess enough of a bout of it um, that they had produced antibodies. So despite the fact that there were negative tests across the entire crew, someone was positive. And as we know, from the very earliest days of COVID, people crammed together on a boat makes for uh, a pretty bad outbreak. And sure enough, uh, it spread, and it spread to most people on the boat, uh, if not everybody. And uh, what, what's, what's interesting about this, and what's, what's really hopeful about this, is that the three fishermen who had previously had COVID uh, did not get sick, didn't get even slightly sick. And so this resembles a vaccine test. It's not the same thing as one, but it resembles one. In other words, if you can get someone to manifest antibodies, a certain kind of antibodies, uh, and then you expose them to a lot of virus, not a little bit, but a lot of virus, uh, will they resist? Will they not get sick? And that's exactly what they found. So this doesn't prove um, that a vaccine will work, but it's very consistent with the idea a vaccine would work. To put it another way, if those three fishermen had gotten sick, that would be a lot to worry about because that would suggest that the vaccines are barking up the wrong tree. So this is very hopeful, it's very optimistic, and it's, it's consistent with vaccines being effective once they're ready. As an epidemiologist, would you like to get your hands on these people and find out what, you know, if they're uh, different from other people that have contracted COVID in the past or if there's anything special about their biochemistry or... Physical That's makeup. a good question. It's a small sample size, and there's lots we don't know. Um, there, there could be something unusual about them or different about them. Uh, it could be a strain of COVID that's a little bit different, a little bit you know, less severe. There's, there's all kinds of things we don't know. So it really is what we call, in terms of medical evidence, we call this a case report. In other words, something happened, and we've written it down, we've had a look and said, oh, this is interesting. If we, if we got a bunch of other ships <laughs> and, and they had the same kind of experience and the same thing happened, then we'd be able to say, hey, this is actually looking like it's, it's, a, it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. So it's, it's, this, it's this indication rather than proof, I think, is, is, the, is the best way to look at it, but a very positive one and, and one that I'm certainly pleased to see. I'm going to put you on the spot here, but I, I know you're a busy person, so you, you can't look at every study. But did you read about the new study that found that women may have a better immune response to fighting off COVID-19 infections uh, than men? And uh, the reason why is still kind of up in the air? This is true not only for COVID. It's actually true for just about every infection you can imagine. Uh, women have a better immune system. It's not entirely clear why. Um, that's, that's, a, that's, that's still a little bit of a mystery. But generally speaking, women are better equipped to fight off infection. With COVID, depending on where you are, though, sometimes we see that women have higher infection rates. And that's because of, of occupational risk that um, what we often call the caring professions. So, you know, being a nurse, being a personal support worker and so on and so forth, those are very risky jobs. So sometimes we see higher infection rate among women because of that, but all things equal, uh, women certainly do better with infectious disease across the board. Okay, well, I, I can't help but be a little bit happy about that, being a woman. Um, let's talk about the fact that, go back to that story about the fishermen, where uh, one of the things that stuck out to me is, uh, that all of the people were tested before they went on that uh, fishing vessel and uh, still COVID, and they all came up negative before getting on and COVID swept through the ship. So it means that not every negative test 
is a real negative. Um, you might have to take successive days of testing. And that leads me to this story um, out of the States where the FDA announced and uh, they've issued an emergency use of this new rapid COVID test for detection of the infection. It'll sell for five bucks. It is highly portable. It's about the size of a credit card. It's affordable, they say, and provides results in 15 minutes. It's by Binex Now. I guess that's the drug company. And they have, uh, they say they've proven Abbott lateral flow technology uh, makes it a reliable and familiar format for frequent mass testing. What the heck is lateral flow technology? Do you know? That's a term I don't know. That's, that's a okay. little bit outside. I, I know about the test. Uh, I know that approval just happened, and what I didn't see was the what's what's called the sensitivity data. So how sensitive is it? In other words, how how well can it pick up, uh, say, low levels of infection? Right. So someone on that fishing vessel obviously had COVID. It wasn't detected. This does happen, and it could be they were still incubating. It could be that the person didn't do the swab properly. There's, lots of reasons you can have a false negative. Um, we have to be careful with new tests, or we have to be cautious to look at it and say, well, what is the probability of false negatives? And if that's high, then we need to think of it maybe more as a screening tool than a testing tool. Uh, in other words, take this test, and if it comes back positive, then, then uh, it means you have COVID. But if it, if it doesn't, well, that you, you're not sure either way. Right. And this test is five bucks. So uh, it's cheap. It's quick. And I guess you could, uh, if you could buy it, I don't know if you get a, a better deal if you buy on in bulk, but I wonder if we'll see companies doing this, you know, buying these tests and you have to test every day. That's something that we may well see in Canada. Um, there's yet another test, one that the NBA has been using, and it's a saliva test and it costs a dollar and you can oh. do it yourself at home. And the FDA has, has, has allowed it in limited contexts, very limited. Health Canada has said categorically they do not intend to approve it at all. And I think that is going to prove, uh, when we look back on the, on the pandemic, that's going to prove to be the single worst decision made in Canada in managing the pandemic. And the reason why they don't want to approve it is that when you don't have a lot of virus, the sensitivity is pretty low. In other words, right. for mild illness, it's not going to pick it up. But it will pick it up when you're the most contagious, and it'll do it pretty well. And if we could get everyone testing themselves at home and testing their kids at home whenever they think they've been exposed, whenever they've been worried about it for a dollar a throw, we would find a lot more COVID, and we would be in a lot better position. So that's the one that I'm really worried about, or, or one that I really like to see us have. Dr. Furness, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for sparing some time with us, and have a good weekend. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, we broadcast live every weekday from 9 till noon on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.